Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? It is good to be back. I have missed you for the last two weeks. I've been in India, as in the nation of India. And uh, it's just such a joy to be back with you and to, uh, to be back in Romans. And I'm, I'm just beginning listening to the messages by, uh, by Will and Robert. And I understand that Robert made fun of the fact that I was going to come back speaking with an English-slash-Indian accent. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. But if you have a Bible, let's go. Romans chapter 1 is where we find ourselves. We left off on verse 16 and 17. And this morning we're just going to handle two verses. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. This text this morning is the text, the passage of Scripture, that almost 500 years ago, almost to the year, in 1517, maybe a little bit before that, that God used to open up the eyes of Martin Luther, this German monk, who when he was in this monastery studying for ministry, uh, thinking that man was justified by the works that he performed for God, he read and battled with this verse, these two verses, And God opened up his eyes to the beauty of the gospel. And Martin Luther, as really the instrument of God, recaptured the gospel and kicked off the Protestant Reformation, which which changed the world as we know it, as we knew it, and uh, continues to to change the world. So so this text that we're going to look at today is is incredibly important. We're just going to handle two verses as as we look at Romans 1. As you're finding that, let me encourage you to use a Bible. If you don't have one, as always, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. If you don't own one, take that as our gift to you. Now, we're going to have Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 up on the screen. But I think there's just something powerful about you having your own copy of God's Word to be able to look at the text yourself and to become familiar with the Bible and for for it to sink into your soul and for you to have your own Bible and you're, you're familiar with where passages like Romans 1, 16 and 17 are on the page. As you're finding that, let me mention that, um, I, I mean, I, I'll tell you more about India in the coming weeks and in our member meeting in, in March, but it was a joy to be back again with our partners, Gareth and Carrie Franks. They are missionaries from South Africa who have been in India for the past 15 years, and they've planted several churches. We got linked up with Gareth and Carrie through some mutual contacts in the States, a network that we're part of, Nine Marks. And so we sent Logan Copley a few years ago to be the interim pastor of this church in India that Gareth planted while he was home on furlough in South Africa as a missionary. And that has just blossomed into a wonderful relationship between us and, and, and this missionary and the two churches that he's planted. And so I went to go and uh, preach and teach at a conference for a church in Kalapur, India, in particular to help them understand the heirs of the prosperity gospel. And while I was there, this was the second year that I did this. Robert went with me last year, and I just went by myself this year and, and linked up with the Franks. But there was this retired English pastor uh, who pastored in London for many years. He and his wife uh, are also friends of the Franks, and they were there. And I co-taught this conference with this brother from, from England. And come to find out, you guys know that I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, You know, the British pastor in the mid-1900s, he's the guy that was preaching during World War II and the Germans were bombing England and and plaster would fall from the ceiling of his church and he would just wait for it to like settle and then he'd keep on going like a boss. (laughs) Well, get this, the guy, Richard Mayhew, the gentleman that I was uh, teaching with, knew Lloyd-Jones personally and as a young pastor in London back in the 1960s and 70s was part of his minister's fellowship Oh. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, Kevin Bacon's six degrees of separation. I mean, it was just two degrees of separation. Like, I just felt like I knew, knew him. So anyway, needless to say, it was a glorious time. But it was just wonderful to see the work of the Lord going on in India and to see the gospel being faithfully preached by these Indian pastors. In fact, at the end of March, 
Pastor Kashal Kale, one of the pastors that we partner with there, will be here in the United States at Crosspoint. And so the last Sunday of March, Lord willing, he will preach here. And I'm so eager to have this brother share with you. He is a gifted and sharp brother that is doing a wonderful work in a city that is just virtually 99% Hindu, that worships all these false gods, and they're doing a wonderful, wonderful work. So I'm really, I'm really eager to have you... Uh, hear from him and hear about India in the coming weeks and at our member meeting. One other little thing that the pastor, the two pastors there, Kashal and, and Pastor Emmanuel of this church in Kalapur wanted to be mentioned to you is apparently in India, they have arranged marriages. And it's, it's very unusual for there to be like love marriages. It's it actually it's kind of frowned on in the culture, even in the Christian church. And so one day, like right before I was about to leave, uh, one of the pastors came up to me and he said, he said, hey, um, you know, the Lord has brought our churches together, uh, and we're partnering on many levels. Um, we've got some young ladies in our church <laughs> that come from Hindu families. They've been converted out of Hinduism, and usually the father would find a spouse for the daughter, but they don't, the Christian pastors don't want their Hindu fathers finding them a Hindu man. So he was asking me, like, would you be willing to find some husbands in your church for these ladies in our church? And I was like, I was like, ah, yeah, I mean, yeah, right, yeah. I think I joked, and he kind of laughed, and I just kind of thought he was sort of joking. 30 minutes later, he came back around, and he said, so, like, should, can we send you some information? Let's formalize this. How are we going to do this? So, Will Hawk and I were talking about this. If you're a young man, get your resume to Will Hawk. Preferably attach a photo, and we will send it on to Kalapur Bible Church in Kalapur, India. And let me just tell you, they can cook. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry, I've taken too much time being silly. Um, <laughs> taking a little bit of a turn, let me just mention, uh, I was, I'm being silly, uh, on a sad note, um, I, I'm, I'm sad to let you know that a, a Crosspoint member, a dear lady that has been a part of our church for a few years, passed away recently, Diana Higgins, who is Mike and Robin Higgins's, mo- Mike's mom, she usually sits right down here with Mike, she passed away this, this Thursday early in the morning, it was not unexpected, she was sick with cancer for several years, fought a long and hard battle but endured to the end. She was a gracious, gracious, dear saint. In fact, the Bible says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. And so Miss Diana, who is part of our body, is with Jesus this morning. Her funeral will be this afternoon at McMullen Funeral Home off of Milgen Road at 3 o'clock. Visitation is at 2. So if you knew Miss Diana or you are friends with Mike and Robin and you'd like to come and just pay your respects, that would be, be greatly appreciated. But we're grateful that Miss Diana is finally and fully free and is with Jesus this morning. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we read. Let me, in fact, let me pray and then I'll read the text. Lord, thank you for your word and for the truth of the gospel and for your Holy Spirit that attends to your word. Who is sufficient for these things? Lord, these two verses are mountain peaks of the Bible. May you lift our eyes so that we may see the beauty of your Son, the glory of the gospel, help for the helpless sinner, the righteousness of God. Lord, for the Christians in this room, I pray that you would stir our affections and Rouse in us worship and awe and wonder and joy in our salvation. And for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, Lord, would you do what only you can? Would you give them the gift of faith and repentance? Would you take their dead heart and make it alive so that they can behold the beauty of the gospel, the glory of your Son and his work on their behalf? And I pray you do all these things for your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, and then my plan is to just work back systematically through this text. Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament is more than just a, a series of stories about God's dealing with the nation of Israel, or even stories that are intended to teach us moral lessons. It's much more than that. Actually, the Old Testament, as Jesus says in the New Testament, is all about Him. It's pointing to Him. But really, in the Old Testament, there's this incredible dilemma. And the dilemma is, how will sinful people be made right with a holy God? That's the underlying question throughout the whole Old Testament. In fact, I want you to see this verse in, in Exodus chapter 34, and it puts its finger on the dilemma and the tension of the whole Old Testament. What's going on in Exodus 34 is that Moses is interceding for Israel, who is continuing to rebel against God. They've, as Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commandments, they were making for themselves golden calves, and God is punishing them, and Moses is interceding for them. And in Exodus 34, we get a kind of picture of the dilemma of the whole Old Testament. And the Lord says this to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now listen to this. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see those last two phrases? It says that God, he says, he promises to Moses that he will forgive sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Well, how is he going to forgive sin if he's not going to clear the guilty? Those two things seem to be at odds with one another. God has to clear the guilty if he's going to forgive sin. But it says here that he will forgive sin, but he won't clear the guilty. So embedded in that is this shadow of the one to come who is Jesus, who will take the place for the guilty so that God can forgive the guilty who are in Christ, but still punish those who are not in Christ, who do not believe in Christ. And that's the dilemma, back to our text, that Paul picks up in Romans chapter 1, that how will sinful people be made right with a holy God? That's the whole argument of the, the book of Romans. So let's work back through Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We're just going to piecemeal, we're going to pull back the layers of the onion on this verse. Verse 16, the first phrase there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. And the fact that Paul would mention that he's not ashamed, the fact that he would even bring this up, I think, is an indicator that Paul realizes that it's possible to be ashamed of the gospel. In fact, he's writing to a group of Roman Christians who are enduring at this point certainly social persecution for their belief in Jesus. And in a couple decades, they're going to suffer physical persecution. This emperor named Nero will rise to the throne and persecute and kill Christians. In fact, he will even burn Christians in the streets of Rome, letting their burning bodies light the streets of Rome. And Paul realizes that it's very real for them to be struggling with this, this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. Think about the way in our context that the world perceives the gospel because we may not at this particular time in our present situation be facing physical persecution, although some Christians certainly are, but just think about the way that the world in general perceives the gospel. The world thinks that the gospel is foolish. In fact, this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. This is just a little bit before where Robert read for us earlier 
as he was uh, reading from 1 Corinthians 1. He read from verses 26 through 31, but, but the section above it, I'll start in verse 18. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, those who are not trusting in Jesus and are staying in their sin through their unbelief. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's a quotation from Isaiah 29. Where, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see what's going on there? Paul is admitting that to the eyes of this and to the ears and the minds of this world, the message of the cross is foolish. In fact, let's just think about what we believe. We believe, listen to this, we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one in eternity past, no beginning, no end. That God, through his son Jesus, created the world and everything that is, knowing that it would fall and rebel against him. And in fact, his plan for that fall in eternity past, the Bible says that God regarded Christ as the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. And so God created a world, all-powerful God, created a world that he knew would fall prepared for the reconciliation of that fallen world by sending his son Jesus, who Colossians 1 tells us is the one through whom all of the universe, everything was created. And this all-powerful creator, the son of God, God himself, allows his creation to crucify him and then dies a death and bears the punishment of God the Father for the sin of his people. This God who could, in an instant, shake the etch-a-sketch and start over, sends his son to die for his creation, and then causes him to rise again over death, sin, and the grave. Friends, to the eyes of the world that likes shock and awe and power and greatness and authority, this message is foolish. A couple just thoughts of application here before we move on to the second part of this verse is that where the world does not mock Christianity, it is likely that what's present in that situation is a watered-down and neutered version of Christianity. See, the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, is, is that God is holy, and all of us, all of us, terrorists in the Middle East and good little church kids in suburban, upper-middle-class America are born separated from God, as aliens from God. And respectable religious Americans hate that message, don't they? Because it is the great leveler. It, it levels the playing field that all of us are guilty and that we don't merely need help. We need to be rescued and brought back to life and there's nothing we can do about it on our own, but we are completely at the mercy of a sovereign God. The world hates this message and so we should not be surprised when the world mocks the gospel. I just look at the landscape of of churches that try and be culturally relevant. 
when churches put their emphasis on being culturally relevant and cool and hip and pragmatically helpful, they rob the gospel of its power. They cater to the carnal wisdom of this world. So, one of the things that we hope to do here at Crosspoint is over the decades have young men that come through Crosspoint are trained for ministry and go and plant churches or pastor churches in our city or wherever the Lord may lead them. And if you're a young man in here and you're thinking about gospel ministry or you're just anybody thinking about sharing the gospel, the way to do faithful gospel ministry is not to look at this world and say, oh, how can we appease the world and be more like the world so that the world will find us relevant and pragmatically helpful and then we'll ease them into the glory of the gospel. Don't, don't, don't do that. Do you see what you're doing is you're catering to the wisdom of the carnal mindset. The gospel doesn't come to appease or help or improve a lost world. It comes to judge it and save it and renew it by God's grace. That, that's why so, by the way, if you're a young man here and you plant a church in, in a decade and I visit your church and you're so cool and hip and you're sitting on a stool with a little soul patch and tight jeans on and you're having a conversation with people about seven ways that they can have a better Tuesday, I'm going to run up on the stage and punch you in the throat. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. God. I'm that curry I had in India is getting me riled up. <laughs> Paul says, <laughs> I don't know where that outburst came from. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. I'll punch in the throat twice. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. What does Paul mean by that? He means that, that it, the gospel, in and of itself, apart from the human, apart from us, it is the power of God. It does the work. The gospel is God's doing. It's not God's partnership with a willing man. It is God's resurrection of a dead, unable mankind. It's God's doing. Jonah utters this in the belly of the whale. When the whale is about to spit him up on the shore, he realizes that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is God's doing. And then let's just look at that word salvation. That should tip us off to the dramaticness of what's going on here. And I just, I just made up a word, dramaticness. <laughs> that word salvation in the original language, means to be delivered. To be delivered. That's what the message of Christianity is. It's, it's not to come and find ways to improve yourself. It's, it's to be delivered. That presupposes that we need to be delivered from something. That presupposes that every human being is trapped, dead in their sin. Like that's the clear witness of the Bible. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. We quote this chapter often here. It's so important. You, you, you would do well to memorize or to write out or type out or copy and paste Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and tape it to your bathroom mirror or your cubicle or wherever. Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So not just the Ephesians that Paul is speaking to, but everybody by nature is a child of wrath. We all, we all inherit this nature. Come on, I, I've told you the story. Like, I'm, I'm, I come from Italian descent on my father's side. And so I, I have this hairy Mediterranean gene. When I was in the fourth grade, I could grow a mustache. <laughs> and my oldest son's in kids' church now, so I'll feel the liberty to make fun of him. He, when he was in the fourth grade, he could grow a mustache. Why? 
because he inherited that hairy Italian gene. Looked like Fonzarelli, creepy little kid with a mustache. All he needed was a pack of marbles rolled up in his shirt. Likewise, friends, we have all inherited, we have all inherited the sin nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And thus, we need to be saved. We don't need to be helped. Nobody's born a Christian. We're born again as Christians by God's sovereign grace. We need to be delivered. Let me just stop here before we move on to the next part of the verse. Do you view the world in this way? Do you? Instinctively? I, 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 I confess that I, that's not always my default. You know, I think of, I think I kind of have people in three categories, generally, painting with really broad strokes. I think of, like, bad people who clearly deserve God's judgment. And then I think of Christians who have been rescued by God. And then for me, there's just kind of this nebulous, ambiguous, middle, neutral ground of, ah, he's a decent guy. And I know that runs counter to everything that I believe and preach every Sunday, but, but still by default, I have to detox myself from this, this mindset. But no, what the Bible is clear that whether or not we are convicted felons on a crime rampage or whether or not we are just self-righteous little church kids, we all need to be saved. There are only two types of people in this world, those that are in Christ by his grace and those that are not yet in Christ by his grace. That's it. Do we, do we view the world this way? Paul continues and he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now this is really interesting. We don't have time to, to, to unfold this like I'd want to, but, but this is beautiful because this is where we see the Bible linking itself together across the Testament. So one of the great promises in the Old Testament, in the beginning, in fact in Genesis chapter 12, uh, God calls this man named Abram, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and he promises to Abraham that he will bless him and that he will make a nation through him. He will give him offspring that will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the, in the desert. He will give him offspring, and that through his offspring, which becomes, at least in shadow form in the Old Testament, the physical nation of Israel, through his offspring, he would bless all the peoples of the earth. Well, ultimately, we learn in the New Testament that that offspring of Abraham is fulfilled finally and fully in Christ. Christ is the one true Jew. He's the one righteous Israelite that comes from Abraham. And he becomes the one who inherits all the promises of Abraham. And now the promise that God gave to Abraham centuries early, earlier that through you I will bless all the peoples of the earth becomes true in the gospel in that through Jesus for whosoever that believes, not just the Jew, but the Greek, which is Paul's way of saying the Gentiles. In other words, everybody else. Through Jesus, whoever believes will be saved. This makes me think of that beautiful verse at the end of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. Let me read it to you. Verses 9 through 12. John the apostle is receiving this vision and he recounts it. Here, after this I looked, Revelation 7, verse 9, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And to the angels were standing, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Did you see that? From every nation and tribe and people and language will be around that throne. You know, one of the things that's so beautiful about, about visiting our our partners in other parts of the world is, is to be with these, um, these, these Indian brothers and sisters. And right now, Springer's in Uganda with, with these saints in, in Uganda. And I'm always just struck by 
how knit together I feel with these people, even though our cultures, our languages, our food, definitely, our tastes, everything is so different. But there's something beautiful about the Spirit of God when it makes a family. You feel, I feel closer to these Indian Christians and these Ugandan Christians than to my own blood relatives who do not know Jesus. And it, it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a foretaste of heaven. And, and one of the kindnesses that God is working in our church is, is we're seeing people from different backgrounds and ethnicities. That is such a joy, isn't it? It's such a joy. Because there's coming a day when we will be around that table and it will be people. It won't just be middle class Americans or Westerners. It will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the way that God brings that about is he raises up churches like us and he sends people out of them. And he causes people in this church to be the means by which it propels missions so that we might send people to the uttermost parts of the earth to take the gospel to these people so that God would bring them to this table. Just one application for my own heart and for the heart of this church and as we meditate on this verse is that for the Christian, this should destroy and annihilate any racist impulse in us. And if I could say one thing that I I'm lamenting a bit about our culture currently is that the, the current political climate is so charged with anger and it seems that sometimes some of those issues fall along racial, ethnic, demographic lines. And friends, I, I'm not... I'm, I'm just, I'm not very politically savvy. I just, I quite frankly, I, 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 I barely, each week I can just barely understand the text. And that's like all I have time to do. I, I don't have time to read every article from, you know, all, all of these people and understand all of the issues. But, but it just seems to me like th- there are Christians that are prone to be more white or black or Republican, or Democrat, or whatever, than they are blood-bought, redeemed, around the table. And that's not to say that there aren't arguments to be made, and all of those things, and look, Christians should be involved in culture, I get all that. But, but there seems to me sometimes, in our current setting, a, a lack of empathy for our brothers and sisters who may disagree with us, and a Assumption of the worst in the other side. And the shame in that is that oftentimes people on the other side, when 1600 Pennsylvania and the Republican Party and the Democrat Party in America and every other nation ceases to be, those people who may be on the other side of us are also those that have been redeemed by the Lamb and we will be around that table someday as part of the great communion of the only gathering that matters and that is Christ's and so maybe I don't know maybe maybe there's just a a check here like Lord let me season my speech and let me be quick to listen and slow to talk and and let me view everything through the lens of the glory of the gospel amongst all peoples And let me be more in love with my brother and sister from other ethnicities than I am with my own political tribe. Verse 17. Now this is the verse that turned the world upside down. Our boy Martin Luther, who around the office we affectionately call Marty Lute, grabbed a hold of this stick of dynamite, and it blew him up. For in it, it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed 
this verse Martin Luther wrestled with. He wrestled with this phrase, the righteousness of God. In fact, he writes in his autobiography of his conversion that he hated these words. And he beat against Paul, he said, meaning beating against Paul, the author of Romans. And he understood the righteousness of God in verse 17 wrongly. He understood it as the the righteousness or the attribute of God in, in the sense that God is righteous and Luther understood, well, the implication of God being righteous is that he must necessarily punish unrighteous sinners. And he certainly understood that he was an unrighteous sinner. So in This phrase here, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And that word revealed is literally the word apocalypse. It's coming. The righteousness of God is on hand. Martin Luther was terrified with this because he did not see the sense in which Paul actually meant the righteousness of God. And he says that he meditated on just this phrase day and night for months. And then he saw. He saw that what Paul was referring to when he says the righteousness of God is revealed, in this instance, as he read through all of Romans and he pieced it all together, he saw that in this instance it wasn't the personal righteousness of God, which certainly is true, God is utterly righteous, but it is God's gift of righteousness that he gives to the unworthy sinner by faith. And that turned Luther's world upside down. Now, listen to this. Oh, so good. I, I wish I could just read to you out of his autobiography, but you'd get bored. And Anyway, but he says this. He says that when I beheld that this righteousness was not God's anger towards me, but his gift towards me, it became to me a door, a gate of paradise that swung open and I walked in. And as he was reading verse 17, Luther says that's when he truly came to faith. Let's read, just flip over one chapter to Romans chapter 3 and let me show you how Luther pieced it all together. Romans 3 verse 21. We get to this in a couple months. It's going to be so, you guys giggle every time I talk about how we're going to get, I mean it might take a couple months. Romans 3 verse 21 This phrase again, and Luther pieced this together with verse 17 that we just read. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So do you see the discovery Luther made there? That the righteousness of God, when beheld in the gospel, is not something to be dreaded, but it's something to be received by faith. It's, it's a gift that God gives to his people. He credits them. He imputes it. He puts it on them, not because of anything good in them, but because of his grace. And now the dilemma for Luther was answered. Remember Exodus 34? God's gonna for, he's going to forgive iniquity, but he will no, by no means clear the guilty. Now he saw how it will be done. He saw that God would put Jesus forward to bear the penalty for the guilty. And then Jesus' righteousness, the righteousness of God, would be given to the guilty sinner to be received by faith so that now you can't, you, can't, you can't even say it without laughing with joy. Now, now, it's such good news. The guilty sinner can be made right by the righteousness of Christ. It's his, not because the sinner is good, but because Jesus is good. (laughs) Praise God. 
such good news. There's this quote that's attributed to John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. But I'm not sure if he wrote it because a bunch of these academic nerds are arguing about whether or not he really actually said it or not. It's kind of spoiled my fun. Anyway, let's just say Johnny B said this. And it crystallizes this truth so well. He said the law, in other words, that judgmental view of God's righteousness, the law commands us to run and work, but gives us neither feet nor hands. (laughs) But better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us, gives us wings. (laughs) Do you see that? The gospel, the power of God for salvation actually gives what it commands. And when Luther saw that, it lit Europe on fire and kicked off this crazy little thing we like to call the Protestant Reformation, which changed the world and recaptured the gospel. Now we end with this, this last phrase. From faith for faith. Let me start again in verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed You know what, this is a sign that I'm getting old. I have a handkerchief, and I'm bringing it. I actually need it today. All right, there we go. Did did Will say something about me getting old the other day? I think somebody was telling me. Anyway, whatever. I am. I'm getting old. Um, I've been going to bed since I got back from India at like 8 o'clock every night because my timer's off and getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, so I'm just getting ready for that retirement breakfast at Hardy's where all the old guys meet at like (laughs) 5 o'clock. Just kidding. Anyway, for in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that last little phrase there, verse 17, is a quotation of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, where God's people were in distress. They were being overrun by the Babylonians as God promised that they would be because of their disobedience. And the prophet Habakkuk is complaining to God. He's saying, God, how could you use these terrible sinners, the Babylonians, to punish your people. And God is telling them, listen, hang in there. Uh, This is all according to my plan. The righteous shall live by faith. And Paul is using that quotation of Habakkuk to accentuate his point that this righteousness that God gives freely in the gospel comes to us by faith. And he emphasizes it there that it's not just a one-time issuing of faith, but it's from faith for faith. Or another way of saying that is from beginning to end, it's all faith. So the Christian life begins with the gift of faith and it ends with the gift of faith until faith gives way to sight and we stand before him free, finally free. But lest we misunderstand the nature of this faith, let's Let's think about it deeply. Even, this is where it gets even more spectacularly good. Even this faith by which we receive the righteousness of God is in itself a gift. You see, that's really important that you understand that because you may think, and this is the way much of the world thinks, people that misunderstand the gospel, they think, oh, well, if you will do your part, If you will bring your faith to the table, God will meet you halfway and your faith, which is in this wrong view, a kind of work, God answers that work of the human with the righteousness and the salvation of God as your sin is taken away and Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. But that would undermine the very grace of the gospel because when is faith enough faith? No, listen to how faith is described in the Bible by Paul. Again, back to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So do you see the, the context of Ephesians 2 is not just this general idea of faith, right? Like I'm getting on a plane and I'm going to fly over the Atlantic Ocean and I just kind of have faith that it's going to make it. That's not what's in view here. That, that's just, we're just doing kind of like 
statistical problem. We're just running the numbers. And well, this is pretty safe. I think it's going it's to. No, that's not what faith is in this biblical sense. What faith is, is this gift by God that allows a dead sinner to behold Christ and put their hope in him. And when God gives this gift of faith, this peculiar, particular gift of faith, it always works. God gives it, and it's exercised toward Jesus. Let me give you a picture to help illustrate this. Um, we moved into this house off of River Road six or seven years ago, and it used to be on well water. And I guess the city ran a line all the way out to River Road, and um, so the previous owners tapped into the city water line, and I think that they must have installed the water line themselves because our water line from River Road to our house uh, running through this cow pasture, uh, by, by the way, these those little Oreo cows on River Road, you know, the black and white cows, we live right behind that cow pasture. If you're ever there, wave to us, we'll say hello, come take pictures of the cows. Um, they're not our cows, but you can leave us money for taking pictures, whatever. Um, <laughs> Uh, in fact, I was tempted one time, some lady stopped thinking that they were our cows, wanted to do like a photo shoot, asked if she could pay, and I was tempted. No, I did <laughs> So the water line runs to our house, and it was like, like a foot underneath the ground, which it needs to be much deeper. And so over the last six or seven years, our water line has failed like numerous times. I've had to go out there and fix it. And in fact, at our staff Christmas party, um, in December, I was picking up some wood and dropping off some firewood, and I drove my truck across the water line. This little soft spot had been raining, raining, and psh, it was like a geyser. And so I missed the party. I was in mud fixing the water line. And it dawned on me that that's how faith is. Sin has wrecked humans, humanity's ability to receive anything from God. We have a, a busted water line. It's broken. And when God intends to save a person, he digs up that old water line and he installs a new one. He lays down a new water line. That's the gift of faith. And God himself turns on the water of God's grace and lets the righteousness of Christ flow through the water line that he installed and gave you so that it would pump the righteousness of a holy son of God into your soul. And so do you see the picture? Faith, saving faith, is not something that we must muster so that God would be pleased with us if our faith is enough. As if faith is like that, that, that thing at the fair when, you know, the guy wants to hit the little hammer so that it goes up to the top and he can get the big stuffed animal for his girlfriend. When is enough faith going to be enough to reach the highest thing so you can get the big boo-boo kitty stuffed animal? That's not the picture of saving faith. Nothing in our hands we bring. God installs the gift of faith in us and turns on the spigot, the faucet, the Niagara Falls of God's grace. He removes the sin and he imputes the righteousness of Christ. And now, although that sinner is now getting the water of the gospel and has lots of growing to do and lots of nourishing to do, now God counts, regards that person as righteous in Christ. Amen. Friends, that's glorious news. Augustine put it this way. He said, Lord, grant what you command and command what you will. In other words, the gospel gives what it commands. It gives faith. It gives righteousness. The gospel is not you try hard and God will meet you halfway. It's you are hopeless. And God will give the gift of faith to a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue. And he will take their sin away 
and he will give them the righteousness of his son. Friends, I'm done, but we could spend the whole afternoon considering how the Christian should respond to this glorious news. You have heard the gospel. You've heard it. If you're a Christian, this should humble you and stir your affection for Christ. If you're not yet a Christian, this should simultaneously back you into a corner and discourage you in trusting in yourself so that you will finally look away from yourself and look to God who alone can install the waterline of God's grace into your soul. Look away from yourself, dear one, and look to Him and receive the righteousness of God. That can be apprehended, I think. That can, that can just be kind of worked out in your life. But you, even now, just saying, Lord, I turn away from trusting in myself and I put my hope in you. Friends, do it even now. Let's pray. Father, take these words, I pray, and use them in whatever way you intend. For the glory of your name, for the exaltation of your Son, for the salvation of unbelievers, for the humbling and the stirring of affections of believers. Have your way, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the team comes back to lead us, let's all stand together and respond as Paul and the team leads us in worship. If you feel like the Lord is calling you, that he is installing the waterline of faith in you for the first time, I, do not leave this building today without speaking to somebody you know to be a Christian. I'll be down front. I'd love to speak to you. For the rest of us, let's consider the glory of the gospel, the imputed righteousness of the Son of God. Let's respond to him in worship, and let's leave this place knowing that we have been delivered. In Jesus' name.